Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers podcast, everyone. I'm your co-host, Ralph Velasco, here again with my very good friend and co-host, Ugo Che. How are you, Ugo? I'm doing great, uh, Ralph. Uh, thank you. How about you? I'm very well. Back in my hometown of Chicago. How about yourself? Where are you these days? Yeah, I'm home. I just returned a couple of days ago from a trip to Barcelona, which is a uh, relatively close to me but it's a city that I love and before that I was uh, for a couple of days in the Dolomites uh, which uh, it's 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 a close region actually it takes about four hours drive to get there that's easiest fastest way to go there is by driving from here it's a four hour drive but so I don't go there as often as I as I should but I had the opportunity to to go there because a person wanted me to show them around a little bit, take photos. So we spent a couple of days with a fantastic light on uh, on the second day. I'm uh, sharing my photos little by little on social media and then I'm, maybe I compile a little album. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some of your shots. They're just spectacular. Wonderful. Well, I'm here in my hometown of Chicago, as I mentioned, uh, just having returned from uh, some trips to India, Vietnam, and Thailand. So I had a really nice pre-holiday trip and over the holidays, actually. So that was good. Okay, well, let's get right into it. Uh, our next guest is an old friend of the Traveling Image Makers podcast. A while back, we recorded episode 66 with him called David Dusherman and the Soul of the Camera. We'll be sure to put a link to that episode in the show notes. But David is a world and humanitarian assignment photographer, best-selling author, digital publisher, and international workshop leader. He's based in Victoria, Canada. When he's home, <laughs> David leads a nomadic life chasing compelling images on all seven continents. When on assignment, David creates powerful images that convey the hope and dignity of the children, the vulnerable and oppressed for the international NGO community. Past clients have included World Vision, Save the Children, and the BOMA Project. Drawing on a previous career in comedy, which we'll get to, David is a dynamic and engaging itinerant presenter and educator, a driven artist, creative professional, entrepreneur, and lifelong adventurer. David educates and inspires through stunning visuals and hilarious travel stories and insights uh, from a life well spent outside and abroad. David is a founder and chief executive nomad of Craft and Vision, which I'm sure you've all heard of. He's the editor in chief of Photograph Magazine and a contributing con excuse me, and a, a contributing columnist to Photo Life, as well as a contributor to and ambassador for Maptia.com. Finally, he has a new online course titled "The Traveling Passionate Photography of Place," and we'll be talking quite a bit about that today. Well, after all that, welcome to the show, David. Thanks very much, Ralph. Nice to uh, nice to be back here. Hugo, nice to see you again. Nice to see you. As always, it's a pleasure. 
Thank you. Where are you nowadays? I'm home. I uh, this is the the first time I've been home for uh, for a little while for such an extended period of time. I spent like you guys. I've been traveling. Spent the uh, the last month in Europe, in Venice, and London. And now I'm home, and it looks like I might be here for uh, for I I don't have flights booked until um, November, so I I am taking a year to uh, you know we spent all this time making photographs. I'm going to spend a year doing something with all these photographs I've spent the last ten years making. So I've got some time to to unpack my bags and not live out of a suitcase. That's a huge luxury to be able to take the time like that and actually dig into your photographs I'm sure I don't know what I'm going to do with myself to be honest but uh, I'm pretty excited about not getting on a plane for a while (laughs) I can understand that well I mentioned your online course called the traveling lens and uh, I know you're getting ready for a limited open enrollment and it's available at the travelinglenscourse.com tell us about the course why you decided to create it and about your approach to teaching. I mean, what can students expect to learn and how? Yeah, thanks. I, um, I'm i really excited about this. We, the reason I did it was because I do these, you know, like so many photographers, I, I do international workshops. And uh, my groups are really small. I do four, at most I do five students. And we have a very specific mandate on these trips. I take my students, we go to a place where instead of going from one place to another, to another, to another, and you're in a town for a day, we go to a place like Jodhpur, India, or in the case of the traveling lens to Varanasi. And we move into a hotel room uh, and we stay there for the entire week. And we, rather than seeing everything, we go deep. And the focus of these trips is to encourage and to teach my students to create bodies of work rather than just going and shooting whatever they see and coming up with kind of a hodgepodge collection of, well, these are the these are the snapshots that I that I made, and I don't mean snapshots in a negative way. I just mean uh, less intentional in terms of how they connect together. And so uh, I kind of go in the opposite direction. Say, look, you're you've got a week. Mostly these students work alone. They go out every day, and they choose a theme or an overriding idea for their work. So in the case of Jodhpur, um, you know, last year I focused on rickshaws, the life of these rickshaw drivers and so all of my photographs somehow connected to the way that rickshaws were a part of daily life in Jodhpur and then I encourage them to choose constraints so that these images cohere so that they work together so maybe it's all color photographs maybe it's all black and white photographs but not all over the map Um, because I think when we have too many creative options we get paralyzed so I encourage them look you know go with one lens go with one camera make that a creative constraint and focus on going deeper and yeah you might miss a few photographs but you will probably get the ones that you make will be deeper they will cohere together they'll make more sense as a as a body of work so that's what I do for my international workshops and what I realized was over the course of a year especially as I travel less and less I can only 
I can only teach 12 people over the course of a year if I do three workshops, which for me is a lot. So I wanted to take the best of that experience and put it into a course that was largely video-based. So we went to Varanasi, India for a week and filmed all of the major teaching points that I would give on a workshop, along with following me and shooting and me showing the work that I come up with using this idea of shooting according to a theme, embracing our constraints rather than fighting against them, and create an experience that people can do from their own home without spending all of that money to, A, just to come on a workshop, but you know even to get on a plane to come to the workshop. In fact, most students spend more money on the, the gear that they're going to bring, you know, new SD cards and a camera bag. I wanted something really accessible for people. So we created this online course that is, uh, I believe it's 20 lessons. It's mostly video based. It's got a lot of extra things like eBooks and downloadable, you know, uh, packing lists. And so there's a little bit about traveling, but mostly it's about once you get there, how do you approach a place and how do you deal with some of the fears inside the, the limited time that all of us have when we show up? I mean, most of us are not going to a place and moving in. We have a week, maybe two weeks. Some people have three days and they call me and say, I'm going to Venice for three days. What do I do? Um, I encourage people to go deeper on things rather than spread themselves out. So if I had to put it in a nutshell, I'd say this is a, a course about going deeper and getting more meaningful, uh, focused, creative photographs out of our limited time in these places. I remember uh, receiving one of your newsletters recently, which was right about that, right? Going deep with uh, with photography instead of going wide. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's hard to define what I mean by going deeper, but I think people resonate with it because, I, you know, if you go on Instagram, uh, the photographs are all the same these days. And it's very easy to show up in, in Paris and focus on the Eiffel Tower. But uh, if you, in a couple of years, if you want to look back at that work and see... Uh, something more than just those snapshots. Uh, I think you ha your approach to a place is so incredibly important. And part of that is just a willingness to let go of some of these expectations that we're going to get that Instagram shot and focus on something that's, um, you know, has a better shot at being, I, I hesitate to use the word iconic, but something that lasts a little bit longer, something that's a little more universal than just these sort of surfacey Instagram pretty pictures, which you can still photograph those all you like. I'm just encouraging uh, an approach that takes us f further and deeper rather than broader. Well, having been, I think I know the answer to this question, but why did you choose Varanasi, India as the backdrop for your new course? I mean, Varanasi is not an easy place to do most things, let alone <laughs> put together a very complicated series of videos like this. Uh, yeah, in part, it was it started with my desire just to go back to Varanasi. I'm kind of driven by my curiosity. And I thought, well, I haven't been there for a while. Let's see what I can do. I, th I think I need about 10 years between trips to Varanasi because, as you said, it is a very tough place to photograph. And it turns out it was a really hard place to do this course because there are so many challenges with the audio. And I had wild dogs running through my you know, my lessons and pigeons shit, shitting on me. And oh my God, it was just, 
it was it, i mean it was a lot of fun but it was on some levels a total disaster um i could have chosen a better place you know you'll be filming and and indians because they are so curious and they're not self-conscious about that curiosity they they will just walk into the shot and stare at the video camera or stare at me or walk right in while i'm talking to the camera and start asking me questions and so it was it was really challenging but i had already decided that i wanted to go back to varanasi um it is a place I know at least well enough to know that I had a reasonable shot at pulling this off. I thought, well, what if I go somewhere that I've never been before and I come back not only without the photographs, but I mean, if you can't if you can't make the photographs, you really shouldn't be teaching this stuff. So I thought I should probably go to a place where I have a, a reasonable chance, where I know that it's visually rich, where I'm not going to spend my whole time fighting um, to get to a location. So I just stayed at a hotel right on the river, and I spent every day walking up and down the river with my uh, with my friend Marshall, who did all the camera work. Um, so looking back, yeah, I probably could have chosen a, a better place, but I think because of all the challenge of it, I think it made it more genuine and real. I mean, the, the reality is we all face challenges. We it's never easy in the best places. It's never easy to show up and do what we do. So in the end, I think it worked out all right. Is this why you did some segments on a boat, not to have any people around, maybe? Yeah, it, it, exactly. I, you know, I got to the point where I, I said to Marshall, look, the only way that we're going to be able to get through some of this is if I can just be alone with the camera. Um, it is almost impossible at any time of day to get to, and I realized how noisy it was everywhere we were. There were there were saws and hammers, and I would start talking. It would be almost quiet, and then there would be bells from a, a nearby temple, just clang, 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 and they would go for 10 minutes. And so finally I just said, that's it. we got to just get in a boat and go to the middle of the river. And, uh, and even then we had people coming up to us in their boats. I, <laughs> You know, you're in you're – in, when in Varanasi, everyone is always asking you, if you're a travel, they're always asking you, do you want a boat? Do you want a boat? Do you want a ride? Do you want a boat? Do you want a boat? Oh, all day, every day. And I was in a boat and people were still asking. They'd row up and say, do you want a boat? I'm like, I'm in a boat. I don't need a boat. So it, I had one photograph I made where this guy was sitting in his boat and his boat was full of water. So he's sitting there on the shore, full of water, bailing out. I mean, it, it's the only reason this boat didn't sink was it was sitting on the mud and this guy still asked me if I wanted a boat I mean his boat was going nowhere it was you know uh, anyway and he meant his boat right yeah he did yeah absolutely <laughs> it's these these guys are I just I assume he figured if I said yes he would just bail his boat out faster and I thought there's I almost said yes I just wanted to see where it happened where it went but uh, yeah it was quite an adventure yeah People, of course, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a big part of travel photography, photographing people. And, uh, and of course, in your, in your course, you, you talk extensively about that and in your approach to doing it, uh, which you maybe can summarize in, in, in a phrase would be being compassionate and uh, not rushing in. Can you maybe expand a little bit more on what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think you, you nailed it on the head. I think uh, compassionate, I think curious. Um, I think the reason we are so scared of approaching people with our cameras 
Uh, and there are some people that aren't. And the people that are not scared of approaching people with their cameras are the ones I actually worry about because they rush in and they, you know, stick a lens in the person's face and then they rush away. And, uh, you know, most often the photograph, either the guy looks bored, angry, uh, surprised, but they certainly don't look like there's any kind of, you know, real uh, human connection there. And so I encourage people to to show some curiosity, to not lead with the camera, not go in with the camera in front, but even put it, you know, put it in the bag, put it behind your, your back, not to hide it, but just that you go in as a... Um, just as a normal human being and you greet them in whatever kind of language you have, even if they don't speak a word of your language and vice versa, to go in and just smile. You know, so much is communicated by body language and it's awkward. It's always awkward. You know, they're looking at you thinking, God, what's this guy want? Ultimately, I think in many of these well-traveled places, they all know you want a photograph. And so the way you stand out is by not sticking a camera in the face. Uh, you spend time with them, sit down, watch what they're doing, you know, ask, is is it okay if I sit here? And and they'll know sort of what you mean and they'll nod or wobble, wobble their head or, or if they don't want you there, they'll tell you that too. You'll see it in their eyes. So I just advocate a, a slow human approach where instead of that 200 millimeter lens shot from a distance or down at the hip, that, that you don't hide, that you go up and you shake a hand or whatever greeting is appropriate and you spend some time instead of spending one five hundredth of a second, spend 15 minutes and you have a better chance not only of getting consent, which for me is very important, um, but of something that's more than just that first shot where they're looking, as I said, sort of surprised or a little awkward. After 15 minutes, they forget you're there. They go back to what they're doing, and they're, the thing that attracted you to them in the first place comes back into view. So, you know, for for those that are listening, you know, thinking, oh, I could never do that. You know, I'm not – I am not an extroverted person. I'm very introverted. Um, so I just – put on a big smile and walk up, take a deep breath, walk up before I can think better of it. And and if I can, I just sit down and I watch. And there's no pressure. I'm not worried, are they going to say yes? Are they going to say no? But if you put time in, you have a better chance that they will, not only will say yes, but that that resulting photograph will mean something to you and that the look in their eye will change and their demeanor, their body language will change. So I think... You know, we spend all this time wondering, oh, what's the best portrait lens? You know what? Forget what the best portrait lens is. Use whatever lens you've got. The thing that will change your portraiture when you travel is taking the time and being respectful and ignoring those cheap shots, the, the hip shots and the tactics. And just go in and be be a reasonable human being with a good sense of humor. And you'll be amazed what what comes out of those exchanges. Maybe all it takes is uh, showing interest in what they're doing, or even showing interest in those, in those people, and treating them as a, not as just as subjects for a photograph, not as props or, yeah, absolutely. You, the, you just nailed it. That's exactly what it is. It's people don't want to be looked at, but they do want to be seen. Mm -hmm. They and to see someone, to truly see them, you need to spend the time. And uh, you're right. I think so many people. In these well-traveled places, 
they have accepted the fact that they are just props in our photographs. And if we can be the photographer that spends time and shows them that, no, that's not the case. You matter to me. I'm interested in you. I respect you. Um, that approach will set us apart and will immediately change the quality, not only the quality of the photograph, but our experience. And if you're in a place for a week, I, I don't like to be anywhere for less than a week. And if you're in a place for a week and you're going to the same places, they will see you again. And maybe over the course of a week, you develop a relationship and you may have better and more opportunities to make portraits, not only of them, but of other people. So I, I think this slowing down um, and being respectful, it, it changes everything. Does your background as a magician help you deal with people in some way, like capturing their attention? Uh, that's an interesting question. You know what I think it does? I think it uh, because, as I said, I'm not an extroverted person. So for me to go on stage and, uh, you know, make a thousand people laugh or whatever, which I haven't done for years. But it, I, I before I went on stage, I would have to take a deep breath, put on a big smile and go out and pretend to be the person they expect me to be, uh, at least to begin with, you know, that that initial getting over the, the stage fright. Um, I think that has helped a lot because when I'm in a situation where I want to talk to someone, that's what I do. I just take a deep breath, put on a smile and walk up. In terms of getting their attention, I don't think so. But so much of comedy, which is what I focused on, is not uh, verbal. So the body language, I think, is really important. And maybe that comes into play, the ability to focus more on nonverbal communication it's very rare that I'm anywhere that we have a uh, significant uh, shared language. So how you communicate with your face, with your posture, not being threatening, being uh, all of this stuff we talked about, making that translate without saying a word um, can be can be a bit of a challenge. But I think as long as we're sincere, as long as we're not really faking it and pretending we're interested, I think it shows. As long as we're not pretending to be kind or respectful, I do think that shows. Yeah, about body language, it just uh, it reminded me I was uh, reading uh, the travelogue of a friend who'd just been to Iran and he said he was in a taxi with this uh, Iranian driver who didn't speak English. Actually, the, the driver didn't speak at all. And just uh, in order to ask if he was uh, all right, he raised his thumb, which is in Iran is like raising your middle finger, apparently. So that, <laughs> that's body language. That's not verbal. But you need to be careful, I guess, about learning the nuances of the local way of using the body to communicate. Yeah, gestures, gestures can be uh, can be challenging. For, fortunately, Facebook has made that thumbs up gesture uh, yeah. somewhat universal. But yeah, once in a while you do something and people react. And that, but that's part of the fun of it. And I think as long as you are uh, have a sense of humor and you're very quick with an apology and you're you're aware, it's very hard to truly, truly offend people. David, just back to Hugo's previous question about uh, you're, you're being a magician, um, you, in the course, which you were kind enough to give us a, a, a preview copy of, you talk about managing people's attention. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into that a little bit deeper. Yeah. I mean, specifically with making portraits of people, I think there is, uh, I get asked a lot of 
you know, do you pose people? And I, I have nothing uh, against the idea of posing people if that's what you want to do. It's not my thing. I don't like to hire, uh, you know, a holy man in Varanasi and put him on a boat and tell him what to do. And that, that just kind of goes against my the, the thing that I want from my photographs. Um, but there are times when, for example, the light isn't great and you uh, or they're doing something that you want them not to do. Uh, you know, very often, whatever they're doing, say you're photographing a blacksmith, and the minute you raise their camera, uh, they're going to change their behavior because it's what they think you want. Um, I use subtle gestures and uh, nonverbal communication to get them to resume what they're doing. But also, let's say they're looking, you know, they're looking sort of directly at the camera i'm i'm not usually a fan of that direct to the camera gaze um and so i will rather than saying you know oh look over here or pointing or something which is i think it feels heavy-handed and also i like to have my hands on my cameras um i will often just look where i want them to look if they're looking at me and i suddenly look up and to the right uh, most often they will look where I look where it's just a natural way of responding to to people um, you know if, if I say look up here of course they'll look up here but I don't have to say the words if I just look to look up to my right all of a sudden they'll look there and if that's what gives them the catch light in their eye if that's what I need from them it's a more natural less heavy-handed way of doing things so I try very hard just to be conscious of my body language and know that there are certain things that as a photographer I do that will help them to um, to give me the best results without sort of, you know, moving them or, or whatever. So it's just a subtle trick that I like to play, especially with the eyes. It's so important that you get light into the eyes. And um, if, if they're looking up and I want them to look back down at their work, I just I just don't look them in the eye. I look back down at their work and eventually that's where they will look too. So it's, it's, um, you know, we used to talk about in magic circles, we talk about misdirection, but actually I prefer the term attention management because it's not really misdirecting. It's, um, it's very intentionally directing. One of the things that you recommend to your students in the course is to sit still, which goes a bit, counter to some recommendations that you that you read around where it's recommended that photographers should move around uh, try different angles uh, kind of like uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson it was constantly jumping left and right up and down with the camera would you like to explain how what you mean by that and why do you recommend it yeah, I, th I think, well, first of all, I advocate both things at the same time, which, as you said, is a little contradictory or counterintuitive. I What I want my students to do is to stop freaking out. I want people to uh, acknowledge that this fear of missing out that is so prevalent, um, if we just go everywhere, if we're constantly in motion, we will, we have a better chance of missing out. But if we sit, if we find a place that really connects with us, like a busy street corner that we just kind of really, we like, you cannot expect to show up and have the light and the moment and your own creativity and perception and ability to compose that scene 
all align within those 30 seconds that we give it. You can't show up and go, oh, well, there's nothing here. If you really love that spot for whatever reason, if you find a background that you love, you need to sit there and watch and wait for, wait to see how the light changes, wait to see what new characters enter the scene. And on top of that, on top of the um, waiting for the coincidence of all of these things, the longer you spend in a place, and I don't mean sit on the street corner for a day, I just mean instead of 30 seconds, give it 15 minutes, give it half an hour, give it an hour, sit in a temple for an hour and watch what happens. And over that hour, you will notice things that you didn't notice in that first 30 seconds. You'll notice relationships. You'll notice uh, compositional opportunities. You will see the light change a little bit, and suddenly that area that was in shadow has now got a great beam of light running through it. Um, waiting and seeing what will happen. And I don't mean just going anywhere and sitting and hoping something happens. You know, obviously you have to show up at a place where you think there is some possibility, but don't write it off if it's just not quite what you want in those first 30 seconds. Spend the time and watch and you'll be amazed at, because you might think that the shot is of this one thing that's in the sort of to the left of the scene, but then you spend some time there and you realize actually it's that thing that's on the right of the scene, or you need to change your angle and move and shoot the whole thing uh, as sort of a reverse shot or a wide angle lens. So creativity, I think increases as we sit and we are perceptive. The job of the photographer is not to press the button. The job of the photographer is to be perceptive and to be creative and to wait for the alignment of that that great light or that great moment or that fantastic background that doesn't yet have a foreground in it. So waiting, rather than running helter-skelter and giving 200 locations in a day, giving them all 30 seconds, pick 20 locations in a day, 10 locations in a day, and give them all half an hour and your chances of coming up with something that's more creative, that is more perceptive, that goes just beyond the low-hanging fruit, is uh, it's not only a greater chance of that, but I think there's also a greater chance of our frustration not hitting this fevered pitch where it's like, I've been to 100 places and I haven't seen anything yet. Slow down and stop freaking out about this and really see the place. You cannot see even a small scene in 30 seconds. You need to slow down. Yeah, I, I call that uh, waiting like a spider in his web for a fly. You know, finding a cool background, a nice scene, you wanna be hanging out and then just being patient and letting something happen in front of you. And. Uh, you say having that patience to be able to wait and not just sit there 30 seconds and say, oh, this place is no good. I'm going to move on to the next. Chances are something's going to happen there. And if you're ready to capture it, you got to be ready to capture it. Absolutely. And I think that's why I like to stay in a place for a week, because even if you sit in a great place for 30 minutes, it could be that the light's just wrong. It could be it's the wrong 30 minutes. It could be that you need to come back that afternoon or at two in the morning or or in different weather. Maybe that place just rocks when it's foggy and you just need to revisit. So I, I like to 
take us a, a manageable chunk of a, a city like Venice or Varanasi or Jodhpur and I limit myself I say here's where I will photograph and I'm not looking for you know the lonely planet to tell me oh you got to go see all these 20 different places I pick a spot that's probably no more than four square kilometers uh, and I that's where I stay and I revisit the same temples the same chai cellar on the corner um, I mean I got to the point in Jodhpur my chai seller actually he he calls me on Facebook he sends me these video requests he doesn't speak a word of English and I don't know that much Hindi that I can I've done it all I've told him my name I've told him where I'm from and I know how to order chai (laughs) and I still get these video requests from from um, Kula my chai wala in Jodhpur and it's because I've spent time there and you know, if you sit in one corner at the same time every day, the cast of characters becomes familiar, the opportunities become familiar. It's amazing. And I, exactly, I become less of a threat. People sort of, I become less of a curiosity and eventually they just accept me. It's the same reason I wear, I mean, if you watch this course, I wear the same shirt every day. I, I mean, I have five of the same shirt, but I, it's very unlikely they're going to remember me the first couple times, especially if I keep changing my outfits. But if every day I show up and I wear the same shirt and the same pair of blue jeans and the same hat, so my my look is familiar to them, um, there's a greater chance that they will begin to sort of accept me and and recognize me. And go, oh, he's the, he's the cool photographer that's not always sticking his lens in my face, or he's the the patient guy that always buys chai from me. Because they don't, you know, they see so many tourists and travelers, they don't re- necessarily remember you. So I do whatever I can to be familiar to them. You know, along this lines, a topic that's really close to my heart is something that you call in the course "be present." Uh, one of my first big international trips was to Peru for a summer at age 15 when I was in high school. I went with my high school as a volunteer. And in preparation for that trip, I mean, these were a bunch of young boys. I went to an all-boys high school. And uh, the leaders really tried to make it a point of telling us, be here now. Mm. And to not be dreaming about our familiar beds, the food that we're used to back home, uh, which was certainly different, or the comforts, (laughs) you know, all the different comforts that we found back home, simply to be here now. You know, how, how does that relate to photography? I, I think it's everything. I think it's funny that you had that experience. I was 18 and did the same thing and spent a summer in uh, in Peru. Um, and uh, I, I, I love, love that place. And I had the same kind of experience. You know, we we were always comparing and when you start comparing you you spend a lot more time talking about the thing that is familiar to you and so in my courses i tell people like i have a moratorium on social media i i tell them i don't want you consuming social media i don't want you posting to social media i don't want to be talking about uh politics i don't i want to if we're talking about anything we're talking about what happened today? Where were you? What did you see? What did you experience? Um, what are you frustrated with creatively? Like, let's talk about right here, right now, because the minute you start thinking about all those other things or you're looking down at your iPhone or you're thinking, oh, I sure hope someone, you know, how many Instagram likes did I get this picture you know, on this picture? We're, we stop 
perceiving. We stop smelling the place. We stop listening. We stop seeing all of these little things going on. I, as I said, I, as our, our job as the photographer isn't to press the button. It's to be perceptive. And you, <laughs> attention is a resource that needs to be managed. You cannot spread it too thin. It's like, you know, depth of field with with the camera. I mean, you've got to choose what you're going to focus on. And yeah, you can crank your aperture to f22 on a lens, but humans don't have the same capacity. We don't have the ability to focus on everything all at once. I don't mean physically. I mean uh, our attention span. So get off your iPhone. Stop spending, you know, don't we don't need to to be posting what we're doing today or eating or what we saw to the world. We need to be making our photographs and being present. You can always do that other stuff when you get back on the airplane or when you get back to civilization, wherever that is. Be present. Put your put your phone away. I use my phone, but I use it for GPS maps and I use it uh, for writing little notes occasionally. Uh, but mostly my phone goes in my pocket so that I can be perceptive so that I can be 100% present. Uh, if you're not present, you're not you're not in a space where you can make the best photographs. Great. I would like to ask another question. And this uh, came to my mind recently when I was discussing with a friend uh, about the idea of quantity, as in quantity of work, doing lots of work, mm. taking a lot of pictures as a way to achieve quality. And I was uh, thinking of a sentence that I found again in on one of your newsletters where you write, if you're not making a lot of bad photos, you're not trying hard enough. And I find it this really resonates because sometimes we we always try to strive to uh, always get the best shot possible. And if we, we are somehow disappointed if we mm. out of a day of shooting, we don't get a great shot. But I don't think mm -hmm. that's necessarily the right approach or attitude. Well, do you have anything to, to add to that? Yeah, I certainly don't think it's the most productive uh, or effective approach or attitude. I think not only, and you're right, I think we all do want the best shot, but worse, we want the best shot right away. Mm -hmm. We think that if if we just wait with our camera in our lap until the magic happens and we put the camera to our eye and press the button, we're going to get the best photograph straight off the bat. And my feeling is you've got to be shooting all the way through the scene. You've got to be um, looking through the lens, pressing the shutter. You've got to be looking at the shot and going, okay, I like this, but I don't like that. You'd be working with the composition. You've got to be, you've got to be 100% engaged. And I call the process making sketch images. You know, you're not, you're not taking the one shot that you hope is going to be the best. You know, this one isn't going to be the best, but it's a stepping stone. You make it, you look at it, you go, ah, that's not quite it. And then you adjust and you change your angle, you change your lens, you, you're moving, as you said, with, you know, Cartier-Bresson, you are moving around, you're tweaking things and being very, um, allowing the process to lead you from A to B to C to D, rather than thinking you're just going to jump straight to, you know, to the very end and get that great photograph. You have to, I have to, and most photographers I know are the same way, you have to make a lot of photograph. That's different from the spray and pray mentality where you just mash your finger on the shutter button and hope something in there is good. Um, this is a intentional, conscious 
sketching through the scene and making a lot of images that yes in in hindsight you will look at and say oh those are kind of those are pretty crappy photographs that's okay they're sketches they're not meant to be good most writers don't sit down and just fire off that that final copy of their novel they start with some really bad first drafts and they edit them and they go back and they do it again we do that as we shoot more and more work again intentionally not just pressing the you know hoping that in the thousand frames that we shoot there's something that doesn't suck i mean an intentional building of uh taking that one image and improving and improving and improving and it's sometimes it takes uh 10 minutes sometimes it takes an hour and sometimes it takes all week before you work through those sketch images and get the one that really works for you but i absolutely believe that the more work you create intentional work that you create and learn from and then recreate the better your work becomes rather than just thinking oh well i didn't get the shot and we move on we give up before it has any chance of becoming something wonderful you know every creative process we start ugly we start with really gross looking my first efforts on every scene are junk they're just they're just meant to help me get the juices flowing and see okay how does that look like in the frame and what does the light look like and the camera is a collaborative tool i can't just sit there and daydream about what i hope it looks like until it all comes together in my mind and then press the button i just can't maybe some people can do that but i don't think that's what ansel adams meant when he introduced this idea of pre-visualization i think he was talking about you know having an understanding of where we are going to I think taking that and then saying, well, you just got to jump straight to that final great image um, is a denial of what the creative process is like. I think you need to make a lot of photographs in order to get to the good stuff. But again, you have to do it intentionally and learn from the ones that aren't working and tweak your process. Yeah, absolutely agree. I tell that to my students as well. Sometimes I see them there say, okay, the light is not great or the subject is not working for me and you just give up and i always tell them there's always something to to explore to see to find other ways of portraying a subject even if the light is not great maybe focus on details but do sketches as you said i think i will use the term from from now on take a lot of sketches and then something will hopefully emerge from all of them yeah and even if it's not from that one scene hopefully you learn something from it yeah if it's not working that's fine but why isn't it working if it is the light what could you do you know can you change your position can you come back later i mean to to have those opportunities and then just you know oh it just didn't work and give up is to lose the investment of that time and energy and those potential lessons so i, I totally agree i think we all need just to slow down and be less concerned you know you started uh, this a few minutes ago talking about quantity of work. I think so many of us are so concerned that we come back from a two week trip with like 300 final images. I mean, that's just outrageous to, to, I, I hope I come back with 12, 24 would be great. So I think if we, if we can all encourage each other and our students that this is not about, Oh, you got to be able to Instagram 12 shots a day that, Maybe having fewer images is a good thing. Maybe 12 or 24 final photographs, that's a lot. 
you know, especially now, maybe a year from now, you look back and you realize uh, of those 12 or 24, maybe only half of them are really as good as you thought they were, but that's still pretty good. We are not going to get there if we're chasing quantity as a final output. It just won't happen. We won't slow down enough and we won't pay attention enough. Uh, our work will just be a disconnected hodgepodge of me too photographs posted to Instagram. And I think we can all do better than that. You know, and talking about your taking a, the next year or so off to go through past images. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go through my images from a, a trip and I typically try to keep up with them on the trip, uh, you know, I, I go through them very quickly and highlight the ones that I think are, are good. And they might be good for, you know, for a teaching reason, or they might be a nice you know, image just as, as an image of, of itself. But um, I think when I go back to a, a you know, something a year later, a couple of years later, I'm finding a lot more images that I think are in that, that, you know, that better category. I'm finding what I call little gems, yeah. images that for whatever reason I didn't think were very good at the time. But I'm like, wait a minute, that's a nice shot. That That's something that I can work with. You, you, you come across that as well? I do. And it's one of the reasons I encourage people to do you know, not just to do one quick edit and then delete their, you know, their so-called crap, but um, keep your work. You know, I don't delete anything unless it's a completely black or a completely white frame. I keep it because uh, six months from now, I will be looking at those photographs through a completely different filter. I may be, maybe when I was in Varanasi as I was when I filmed The Traveling Lens uh, and looking at the whole thing through a black and white filter. I was creating a very specific set of images that I intended to work together as black and white photographs. So you might look at those and go, eh, no, it doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. And six months later, you're working on a different project that's color work for uh, India in general. And you're doing an edit and you go back and go, oh, I can't believe I didn't see this one. It's a terrible black and white photograph, but the color is fantastic. How did I miss this? And so we always, and this, you know, I do an edit as you do right away. I look at my dailies. I see what's working. I see what's not. I see what I need to return to and try again. But then I will do another another edit when I get home and I've ingested all my stuff into Lightroom and, you know, I'll do a better edit then. And usually I'll do one at six months and one at, at a year or two years. I'm constantly reviewing the work because I will have changed as a photographer. My tastes will change. My intent for those images will change to to write that image off or a collection of images just because they didn't work right at that moment for you, I think is really short sighted. And, and I think creatively it robs us of, you know, some of my best stuff is I look back and I go, I almost deleted that because it didn't do what I was hoping it would at that particular moment. Giving your work some time and a little bit of uh, distance, I think is really healthy. I think maybe too, you'll, you might have different post-processing skills that, you know, might work on a different image than you thought at the time. Sure. I mean, we, you know, some people, if you're really picky about noise, for example, in your image, and you've got a, a shot that doesn't work because the noise is too much. Well, uh, uh, two years from now, you may realize that 
you actually like the image just with less shadow detail. So you, you pull the exposure back and the noise disappears or Lightroom has changed its, its noise reduction and suddenly the image just is absolutely everything you want it to be to have deleted it just because at that moment, um, you know, your skills or the technology wasn't quite where you wanted it, I think would be a shame. Um, I, I always say that I, I, I never delete anything because you never know when I might need an overexposed, out of focus photo of my my feet for uh, for some sort of a you know a class that I'm teaching or you know what not to do. So I keep everything. Yeah, and storage is so cheap. I mean, it uh, to be honest, it takes more time to go through your work and find and delete all the the you know the so-called crap. Just keep it on your hard drive. Spend your time and your energy going through and evaluating the images that really make you happy. Don't worry about the stuff that doesn't work. Just leave it there. Focus instead on choosing the images that really make you happy and that that uh, that do you know that align with your vision, that do what you wanted them to do, and and keep that other stuff because you really truly don't ever know. As you said, you know you, you might just need that weird out of focus thing, or you know again, some people they have very specific criteria for their images, like oh you know I don't want to blow my highlights, and oh I blew my highlights on this, I'm going to delete it. Well, a year from then you realize it's not whether you blow your highlights or not, it's which highlights you blow, and. To, a, to judge everything based on, or, you know, oh, it's not that sharp, it's not perfectly sharp. Well, two years from now, you may come to the more mature realization that sharpness is not everything, and that that photograph, while not sharp, has an awful lot of poetry to it, and to have deleted it would just be a shame. So I, I just urge everyone, don't, don't delete your stuff, just buy a bigger hard drive. And most of all, never delete your stuff in camera. Uh, absolutely. I see, uh, see it, people do it chimping looking at the back lcd and then okay delete delete keep delete delete and just waste a lot of time doing that and maybe they delete the wrong picture by mistake and say, just get another sd card they're cheap <laughs> oh they're so cheap and and you know the time we spend chimping unless you're back in your hotel room you know after the sun's gone down that's time that you're you're taking yourself out of the moment. I see so many photographers, they take the picture, they look at the screen, they take the picture, they look at the screen, and you're in the moment, you're out of the moment, you're in the moment, you're out of the moment. It's stay in the moment. Trust, you should know your gear well enough that you know you're in the general ball, ballpark. You don't have to check the sharpness on every friggin' photograph. If you're that worried, then stop shooting at f1.2, shoot at f4, shoot at f8, and, and pay attention the moment is so much more important that you are present that you are really there is so much more important than that every single frame is perfectly sharp or that the histogram hasn't changed learn your camera and then put it to your face and keep it there until it's over because the minute you take it down as i said you're out of the moment but it also takes time to get back into the moment to get your you know to to see these things and it could be that while you're looking at that histogram, the moment you were waiting for has come and gone. So really stay in the moment. Never take yourself out until take yourself out of the moment when you're locked in your hotel room. The light has gone down. You've eaten dinner. You know, everything else, you should have a camera. You should be photographing and not worrying about what's on the back of your camera. As our good friend Rick Salmon says, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, one autofocus image is a mistake. 20 out of focus images as a style. Yeah, it could be. 
<laughs> I just think that's hilarious. So, uh, as we wind things down here, uh, what are some other major topics in the course that you cover that you'd like to briefly explain to our audience? I know one is uh, you talk about visual inventories. Yeah, that was in fact exactly what I was going to say. I mean, my approach is really very simple. I just sort of codify it so people sort of have a rough sense of a, a structure because we you know we show up in a new place and we're so overwhelmed with oh where do I start and we've got all these fears and the thing that I suggest especially if you have a week it's harder to do if you know you got one day in wherever you know you're going to the Taj Mahal you got one day uh, really hard to pull it off but if you got more time that idea of a visual inventory is not consulting the lonely planet or googling the place but going and experiencing it for yourself and saying what does this place offer for me what are the possibilities here that really resonate for me maybe you get there and you really don't care about the eiffel tower well walk around and ask yourself what do you care for what are you looking at that's making you go oh my god look at that oh that's so cool you know you see light in certain neighborhoods or um, you know, you realize that it's the coffee shops that you love or the wine bars or some aspect of life. You know, maybe it's the religious life in India. Um, and so you end up at a series of temples that I didn't go to because I was more drawn to the life on the river itself. We will all be attracted to different things and places will all do some things really well and other things less well for us. So I make a visual inventory and I say, spend the first couple days, yes, with your camera, yes, making a lot of sketch images, but spend it asking yourself, what is this place to me? What are What is this place giving me um, that other places don't? Now I have a sense of what I'm going to spend the next four or five days photographing rather than this kind of hit the ground running, I got to shoot everything that moves approach. The visual inventory simply says, what are my assets? What can I work with here? You can't do everything, so you may as well make some choices based on uh, putting your strongest foot forward. And that's kind of a combination of what is this place giving me and what am I really excited about in this place? Is it the temples? Is it rickshaws? Is it, I don't know, co you know, architecture? Is it a, a certain festival? You know, I went to Varanasi thinking that I would, that the holy festival would be a really, really big part of this. In the end, I hated it. I mean, I, I just hate, there was nothing about it that made me want to photograph. I made probably made 800 frames. None of them were worth anything. Um, I, I shot the whole week of Holy there. You wouldn't know it. You, there's not a single picture of people with paint on their faces. And I shot something else, but my, it was my visual inventory and my willingness to say for me, what, what is working and what isn't. I am. I never feel an obligation to go to a place and shoot that thing that everyone has to shoot. If if it doesn't appeal to me, I don't photograph it. So I think you have to be, you have to give yourself the time to know what those things are and to take some notes, um, because you may also show up and go, oh, look at that thing, that thing that's character, you know, the boats on the Ganges River. But just because you recognize that and you make one shot of the first boat you see on the Ganges River doesn't mean that that is the best photograph possible of a boat on the Ganges River. It doesn't mean it's the best expression of that subject. So just having a sense of I'm going to spend the week shoot photographing this because this is what resonates with me. And I'm going to I'm going to give everything else the permission not to 
be in my photographs. I don't have to chase everything. I think that brings in a, a tremendous amount of freedom and it brings focus, which I think is really important. And, and you talk about doing that pretty much from the moment you get there and are in the taxi from the airport, right? I mean, you're, you're already being very, very aware of what makes this place unique? What is it that interests me and what can I come back to? Absolutely. I mean, the minute you land, you, your eyes should be open. Your your heart and mind should be open to this place, and you should be thinking about what is what is this place to me. And um, that starts when you're on the absolutely starts when you're in the taxi, and it doesn't stop by the way until you get back on the airplane. I mean, I have a camera with me all the time. When I go to dinner, I have a camera with me. When I get in the taxi, I have a camera. Because you don't know when these moments of magic, these little moments of grace, you don't know when they're going to happen. And it's uh, it's very tempting to say, oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to the, uh, I'm just going to dinner. I'll just leave my camera here. Bring your camera. Because it's so often during those times when you let your guard down and you're sitting there and it's like, I didn't expect that. Well, of course you didn't. You, you've been there two days. How, how, what are you, Your expectations have no bearing on what may or may not happen. So don't let your expectations sort of say, oh, I'll just leave your camera in the room. I always have it. And I don't put it away until I'm at the airport and, you know, really have to start when my job becomes getting home instead of making photographs. Speaking of dinner, you just reminded me that I have to cook dinner tonight for the family. <laughs> oh, sounds good. What's for dinner? <laughs> uh, lamb. Ah, brilliant. So we, we had this conversation. We've been going at it for almost one hour and I would love to keep going, but I really have to go. So I also think you have things to do uh, today. I do so, indeed. I do indeed. Yeah. So I'd like to thank you uh, for your for your time today. And before we, we wrap this up, uh, if you just want have anything else to add or just would like to let everyone know where they can find you online or where, where they can find about your course. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. I mean, the easiest place to find me is at daviddusheman.com. That's kind of the that's my my home on the internet and you can see my photographs and my teaching and that sort of thing. Uh, the traveling lens course, we're only opening it for a brief time, really just to let our waitlist people in and it will be open from the 21st of January until the end of the 24th of January. And if you go to the traveling lens course.com, you'll see all the details there. And there's a, a video that kind of walks you through right at the very beginning, walks you through the course, but everything's there. The stuff you, you know, the, the modules, the things you can expect to learn and take away all the bonus materials, everything's there. And, uh, you know, it's not for everyone. Some people really like that approach where they go to a place and they just shoot whatever moves and, and they're happy with the postcards. But if you're, if you're, I don't mean if you're serious, but if you're, if you're serious about photographs that, um, that work together and go deeper on these places. If you want to explore what I consider to be the true work of this deeper approach to traveling photography, um, then at least give it a shot. Take a look at it because, you know, it's uh, we photographers spend a lot of money on some really goofy things that don't help our photography at all. And I really, truly believe that this course is uh, is the best of my teaching on traveling, on photographing people and places. And uh, my hope is that it will um, be much more valuable to you than the relatively small cost of the course. I'm sure it will. Actually, just started checking it out, and uh, it's the at the beginning of it. Um, just looks great. Thank you. 
Yeah, it really is well done. And I uh, appreciate your being on the show, David. So everyone, you realize that there's just a small window of time. So if you're listening to this podcast, January 21st to 24th, is a limited enrollment. So you want to get in during that period. And I'm assuming you'll open up enrollment uh, somewhere down the road again. But uh, jump in now, David. Yeah, probably won't open uh, in 2019 again. Um, I've got some other things going on. So this will be the opportunity to get in on it this year. So do it now. Well, thank you so much. The course is fantastic. I've, thank I've really you. quite a bit into it, and uh, I learned quite a few things myself. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for, uh, for the time. Thanks to Absolutely. you. So, Ugo, before we sign off, do you have any trips, workshops, or speaking engagements coming up in the near future that you want to tell our audience about? Oh, yeah, just uh, yesterday, on a, basically on a whim, because the day before I had f uh, found a, a great offer for flights to Japan. So I mm. said, oh, it would be nice to go to Japan. And so I booked my flights. I'm going to Japan in November. Well, this is going to be a family trip. I'm going with my wife, but I was all, I'm also going to use this as a scouting trip for a possible future tour. And maybe by the time this episode goes live, you will be able to to find maybe a pre-sales page on uh, on my tours website at tours.ucfoto.me. I think that's a, that's a concrete possibility. I'll be going back again to Japan in 2020 for uh, for a little tour. And outside of this, I'm, yeah, I'm still uh, a bit more than a month away from the Venice Carnival workshop that I'm doing there. I think at this moment we have one spot left due to a last minute cancellation. So talk to me if you want or just go to my, my site. And uh, we still have, I think, three seats open for the... Uh, workshop street photography workshop i'm doing in milan in april with uh, with steve simon so again uh, contact me if anyone is interested how about you ralph yeah so i'm right in the middle of the uh, travel show ex uh, speaking season usually the first quarter of the year so just did chicago heading to san diego this weekend i'll be at the new york times travel show the week after that and then also Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. Uh, I've got uh, quite a few wonderful trips coming up this year. And as I look at the, the, uh, the registrations, uh, there's only one or two spots left on quite a few of them. Uh, Cuba sold out, Portugal uh, two, got one double room, Costa Rica have got one or two spots. So these trips are filling up pretty quickly, uh, but also I've got India, Romania with one spot and uh, Cambodia towards the end of the year as well as Copper Canyon. So uh, just go to photoenrichment.com for more information about that and you can always uh, follow me on all the social media networks at Photo Enrichment and at Ralph Velasco. How about yourself, Hugo? Where can people find you? I would say that the main hub is uh, ucphoto.me and you will find there links to all of my other websites. Uh, and uh, social media channels and whatnot. And as for this show, find us at ttim.photo. Uh, share this episode if you liked it with your friends and followers. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, share the love. We And we want your comments, questions, suggestions for 
new guests topics to uh, to cover and everything okay well let's get out and shoot let's get out and shoot <laughs>